as we come to this passage again this morning, I just want to remind you that a lot of these sermons are based off of principles that I learned in a book by Robert J. Morgan called The Red Sea Rules. It is an incredible book, and once you kind of work your way through that book, it's really hard to read Exodus 14 without all of those principles jumping out at you immediately. And so last week, and and even the week before, we've mentioned and talked about how specifically God led the people of Israel to this point. God really wanted for the people of Israel to be hemmed in on every side. He wanted the Red Sea to be directly in front of them so that there's no way forward. There's wilderness on either side of them, so there's nowhere to go right or left. And Pharaoh's army is marching and approaching from the rear. We, we focused on how God gives very specific instructions. He says, you're going to go to this exact point between here and there and here. I want you to face that way. And all the while, he's also moving in Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want us to look again at verses 3 and 4. Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So what we're seeing here is Pharaoh getting this idea of, wait a minute, they seem to be wandering around in circles. They've turned around. They turned back. Now they're encamped in front of the sea. There's nowhere for them to go as he gets spies coming back and forth. And he probably has this thought, you know, maybe it would be a good idea for us to capitalize on their confusion and jump and win them back over, enslave them once again. And so God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Remember, we said this as we walked through the plagues. This is one of the times that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart in the way of hazak. Remember, to fortify, to strengthen. This is the same thing as going skydiving and having a tandem jump for your first few jumps. I still, to this day, believe that the only way I'm going out of an airplane is if somebody forcibly throws me out of the airplane. But some people in this world enjoy this experience. They pay good money to go and be jumping out of an airplane 10,000 feet above the ground, hoping that their parachute or their backup parachute or both are able to open. So what happens is so many people go and they they fail to actually jump out of the plane. You remember us talking about this, that now you are strapped to somebody else your first few times. So you get up there and you look out of the plane and you go, it's a lot higher than I thought it was. Ah, let's turn back around. But they've already used the money to, to rent the plane, to buy the fuel, to go up in the air. So they're like, man, that's great. But you had a great idea jumping out of this plane. So here we go. And the person you're strapped to jumps out. So off you go out into the wilderness to just fall. I saw a video the other day of a guy who's falling out of the airplane and he passes out while he's falling tandem jumper. Okay, so you see him and he's going. "Ah!" And then when he wakes up in the video, there are already the chutes opened, but like he wakes up and doesn't remember where he is. So he wakes up and goes, "Ah!" I mean, it was great. It's a great video. People pay to do this. Like, I don't understand. Makes no sense to me. But this is what happens with Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh going, ah, maybe it's a good idea to go. And God goes, yes, you will go. He fortifies and strengthens Pharaoh's resolve and his will so that Pharaoh pursues. Because what does it say? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. God is very concerned about his glory. And he will get glory over 
Pharaoh. And again, we, we've seen this verse and this phrase over and over again throughout the plagues. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So the reason behind taking Israel to this place where it's a dead end and there is nowhere to go is because God will get glory over Pharaoh. But see, that, that word glory can, can kind of be foreign to us. But I want us to understand today that we should be more concerned about God's glory than our relief. We should be more concerned, no matter the circumstance in our life, we should be more concerned about God's glory than our relief or our prosperity or our comfort or our convenience. We should be more concerned with God's glory than our personal preferences. But what do we mean when we say God's glory? Well, listen, they talk about it all throughout the Bible. There's 50 different books in the Bible that mention God's glory. His glory is specifically talked about over 340 times. God's glory is absolutely essential to the story of Scripture. But like, I don't know about you guys, when, when I think of glory, I, I think of like, ah, you know, like the, the bright lights, the Shekinah glory, like the, the moments in Scripture where an angel shows up and like everybody hits a knee and is like, oh, I'm dead, I've seen the Lord. And they're like, fear not. I come in peace. You know, like all those crazy scenes where it's this bright light. We, we sometimes just over-spiritualize glory to such a degree that all we can think about is the bright shining light. So what, what on earth does it mean for me to be more concerned with God's bright shining light than with my relief? Like, I, I, why should I care how bright the Lord shines? He's kind of in control of that, right? Well, don't miss that there's a lot more to glory than just bright, shiny light, Okay. The word that we talked about with Pharaoh, when Pharaoh hardens his own heart, is a Hebrew word that means heavy, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart like a stone and made it heavy. He made it sinful. This same word, kavod, which means heavy, can mean hard. It can also mean glory. In the Old Testament, they used the word heavy to mean glory. So immediately, my mind goes to back to the future. Anybody else a fan of back to the future? Or Back to the Future 2, or Back to the Future 3. Okay, there's one person in the back who's seen this movie with me. What is wrong with you people? That's like classic cinema. Thank you, Ted. God bless you. All right. Does everybody remember what Marty McFly used to say? He said, whoa, that's heavy. And you know, he goes back in time, and Doc Brown is over there going, great Scott. And then he says, he says Doc, that's heavy. And Doc goes, there's something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull in 1985 that everything is so heavy. He doesn't understand at all that heavy is another word for significant. Like, whoa, that blows my mind. Whoa, that's incredible. That's awesome. It's heavy. This is part of the sense of the word used in the Old Testament. It's heavy. It is significant. It has value. It is awesome. It draws our attention to it. It is heavy. So God's heaviness. It proves that God's not a lightweight. He's a heavy hitter. God's glory is his heaviness, the fullness of his presence. When, when you wrap your mind around who God is, it's heavy. It's a weighty thought. It's something that we have to chew on for a while. But it's also in, in more modern terms, when we say glory, we're talking more about like the glory days. We're talking more about a group of people who in common recognize the renown of a person. So like if there is a star quarterback or a star basketball player who grows up in the Andalusia area and goes off to the NBA, we hold that person up. There's 
you know, playgrounds built in their honor and they donate money towards those playgrounds. And then there's portraits of them hanging in the room where that playground is. And that is a glorious thing. We think about the glory of that person growing up in Covington County because it is collectively, commonly recognized that there is a special renown to that person. You know, when we talk about people living in the glory days, like maybe those people that were the were the, the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas. Oh, yeah, I'm using up-to-date phrases this morning. You are with me now. The bee's knees, the cat's pajamas in high school, but they can't cut it in college. So they, they reminisce for the rest of their life about, ah, oh, the good old glory days, back when everybody thought I was something else. Back when I throw this football clear over that mountain right there. Tell you what, those were the glory days. It was glorious because people commonly recognized that there was some special renown. But as soon as that big fish got out of the little pond and in the big lake, people didn't call them glorious anymore because their skill was not renowned to a large group of people. So this is what God is doing. He's proving his glory among all of Israel and all of Egypt. And remember, we've mentioned before that even as Israel travels through the next 40 years through the wilderness, every nation that they come upon has heard the tale of what God did to the Egyptians. This is how God is going to gain glory over Pharaoh. But see, a lot of times God gaining glory means us in struggle or strife. And and in those seasons... We like to think immediately about, how do I get this better? How do I get this weight off of me? How do I get over what's going on instead of being concerned about how can God be glorified in this situation? In what I'm going through, how can God be glorified in my life? But see, we have a lot of excellent scriptural examples of this happening over and over again. And folks, even if some of this is going to run into our Sunday school lesson from this morning. But first, let's let's start in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, "Uh, Who sinned, Rabbi? Was it this man or his parents so that he was born blind? Because there's there's only one possible solution. This man was born blind, so that must mean there's sin involved. But Jesus teaches them and and says in verse 3, It is not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Folks, This man was born blind so that the specific day could happen where he ran into Jesus and Jesus could restore his sight so that everybody that was in earshot, everybody that could see, everybody that ran into this man would know the glory of Jesus. How unique Jesus is among all the other prophets that came. How Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is the Messiah because he can restore the sight of the blind, even those born blind. And so sometimes the challenges that we face, this man living his entire life in darkness up until the point that he met Jesus was so that God might be glorified in this man's life. And all the while, this man was probably growing up thinking, why on earth am I blind? What is wrong? God, could you please give me some relief? Could you please send me some help? And God did send him help. But all the while, his focus should not have been 
if it was, this is only speculation, should not have been on his release and on his ease and on his comfort and on being able to see, but on how can God be glorified through what I am experiencing? Look at John chapter 11, what we talked about this morning with Lazarus. Now, a certain man, verse one in chapter 11, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Lazarus is ill. He finds out he loves Lazarus. What does he do? I'm going right now. I got to heal Lazarus before he dies. He goes, no, 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 no. Don't worry about Lazarus. This is all for the glory of God. And he waits two more days to make sure Lazarus was dead and make sure that Lazarus stunk by the time he got there. So everybody knew that Lazarus was dead so that when they rolled the stone away from the closing of the tomb, the smell hit everybody. Everybody knew that there was fresh death in that tomb so that Jesus could overthrow and overcome death. And then Lazarus gets the joy of dying not once, but twice. And then as soon as he's resurrected, all of the officials, all the Pharisees and all the people of the Sanhedrin look after finding Lazarus to put him to death. So he doesn't resurrect Lazarus to a mansion. He doesn't resurrect Lazarus to a new life of a comfy living with a chair and and a a 401k that just keeps spitting money at him. And he doesn't ever have to work again. He literally resurrects Lazarus so that he can run for his life for the rest of his life. And then eventually Lazarus has to die again one day. And all the while, do you think Lazarus is going, man, Lord, this is just, golly, why do you hate me so much? It was for the glory of God. Lazarus was concerned with God's glory, not his comfort, not his convenience. Look with me again at what Jesus says in his own example in John chapter 12. Beginning in verse 20, there were some There were some among those who went up to worship at the feast, and they were Greeks. So they go to Philip, and they ask Philip if uh, they can see Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I know these guys want to meet with me. But in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus teaches them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Even Jesus, as he faced his death, understood that his death was for the glory of 
God. It was not about Jesus's comfort. It was not about Jesus getting relief or an ease of the pain or a lessening of the difficulty of the situation. It was about God's glory. And if you look at John chapter 17, the entire high priestly prayer that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross is about glorifying the father. It's about praying that God would be glorified in Christ. He knows that for this purpose, he was born. And I wonder how many of us, when we approach a situation that is difficult or challenging in our life, do we have the wherewithal to say, God be glorified, no matter what that means for me. There's a reason that Jesus follows up with, this is my hour and Lord glorify your name. And he follows that up with whoever loves their life will lose it. Whoever hates their life will gain it. Because that has to be our attitude. We have to be willing to say, God, by my life or by my death, may your name be glorified. And that's not popular and that's not fun. And that's not something that I wake up every morning and say, just to be completely honest with you. I struggle with this. Do I want to wake up and say, hey, God, could you make me miserable today for your glory? Boy, I sure would love to have just a horrible day where everything goes wrong. I want two flat tires. I want my air conditioner to break. And I want my children to run around like heathens all day. And then you'll be glorified. Come on, Jesus. Who prays that every morning with me, right? No. My prayers look a lot more like, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, this is hard. Jesus, I can't do this. Jesus, you got to do something. You know, I I read a book one time that that helped me understand this and put it in a really good analogy and really good terms. It's called cat and dog theology. If you're a cat person this morning, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. Okay, I love you in the name of Jesus. I love you as a brother or sister in Christ. But cats, it's just no, no to cats. All right. It, It doesn't help that I'm allergic to them, but cats are young Christians. All right. Cats are immature Christians in this analogy. So just listen, God doesn't waste our suffering. God doesn't do anything different, difficult to us just to, to give us a hard time. God actually is the one who's feeding us, who puts a roof over our head, who takes care of us. God doesn't waste any of our suffering. He, he longs to give us release. So the cat looks at the Lord and says, well, you feed me, you water me, you love me. I must be God. You take such good care of me. I must be the center of the universe. And how many people who've owned a cat tell me that's not why your cat thinks that's how cats act, isn't it? You're just kind of the staff there to care for the cat when they want to be petted, when they want to be loved, they find you. How many people come home and their cat is waiting on them and says, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I've been waiting on you all day. That's a dog, right? You want a pet like that? Get a dog. You want something that just kind of does its own thing and you clean up after it and clean up the litter box and put the food out and do all of that. That's a cat. You feed me, you give me water, you give me shelter, you love me, I must be God. And folks, I think a lot of us are young and immature in our faith, and we think, well, God, you make sure I've got food to eat, you you bless me with children, you bless me with a spouse, you bless me with this, you bless me with this car, you bless me with this house, you bless me with all the things that I need in my life. I, I must be the most important thing in the world. But how does the dog look at things? The dog says, you feed me, you water me, you love me, You must be God because everything I need comes from you. That dog doesn't care if you beat it. That dog doesn't care what happens. That dog's going to be there waiting on you, wagging his tail. You leave for the day and you come home. That dog is excited to see you. Hey, what can I do? You want to throw a ball? I'll get a ball. I love balls. Let's just throw a ball. Just get a stick. I'll do a stick. You want to do a stick? You want to go for a walk? Go for a walk. I like a walk. Anybody? Hey, there's a squirrel. Anybody see a squirrel? All right, here we go. Hey, no, I'm back to you. Hey, I love you. I'm back. You're here. I love it. I'm so glad you're here. 
Have a dog laying down asleep that you get up and go to the door. As soon as they hear those keys jingle, you're not leaving without me. I'm going with you. It's the difference. It's a beautiful analogy, okay? I know that it's a bit silly, but think on it. This is how we treat the Lord. We're not more concerned for God's glory. We're more concerned for our relief. We're more concerned about God taking care of us because we are the most significant things in the universe. God is the most significant person in the universe. And His glory should be utmost in our priority list. Whether that means that we have a great easy day or whether that means that we get drugged through the mud seven times over, our focus should be on God and trust that God will deliver us. Look, I'm not talking about seeking out evil and hardship, okay? I'm talking about trusting even in the midst of hardship that God will deliver in a way that will glorify him. But it's going to be in his time. It's going to be on his schedule and it's going to be by his methods. So it's not going to be the way that you and I expect. It's not going to be in the time frame that you and I expect, but it is going to come. What is what does the Psalms tell us over and over again? Look at Psalm 115 one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He is steadfast in his love. He is faithful to deliver. Look with me again at Psalm 50, verse 15. This was even in the Sunday school. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And what? You shall glorify me. God promises deliverance, but it's not the deliverance that you're looking for. And it's not in the time frame or the way that you might have been expecting or I might have been expecting. But he will deliver. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is a God of deliverance. But folks, I I know as as I say all of this, it might be really hard for you to comprehend and for me to comprehend because it kind of makes God sound like an egomaniac, right? If he's so concerned with his glory, why would I want to worship somebody that needs everybody to worship and praise him and needs everybody to look at him? There are people who have walked away from the faith Because they say, I I can't serve somebody that's like that. I can't follow the Lord. If that is the Lord, then I reject Him and I'm going to do my own thing. Because I'm not going to worship somebody that's so wrapped up in who they are and how great they are. It's one ego against the other, right? But see, the problem with that is that we miss one of the most fundamental facts about God's glory. You see, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him this is something that john piper's been teaching and preaching for years and it is true all throughout scripture when we put something else as what gives us the most satisfaction then god is not most glorified in us it's not about just bringing glory to this one selfish egocentric God, it's about God knowing that when we are focused on glorifying Him and being satisfied in Him, that's when He's most glorified in us. It's not that He wants us to be miserable and draw all attention to Him. He wants us to be content, to have joy, to be satisfied in Him. And when our perspective shifts and the most satisfaction we can get in life is in God, then he will be most glorified in our lives. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, 
I think sometimes I get more satisfaction after a long day of just sitting in my chair and drinking a can of Coca-Cola Classic. That can be the most satisfying thing in the world to me. When I get to the daycare and Lily is excited to see me and she does this little <laughs> and runs over and hug me, hug me, hug me and wants me to pick her up. That's the most satisfying thing in the world to me right now. I can't, I can't honestly say before you, Hi, I'm your pastor. I've got this pegged. All right, let me tell you how to do it. How to be most satisfied in the Lord. It's a challenge. Because we take good things and make them God things. And we very quickly hit a trial or hit a tribulation and we think, God, give me relief. And we're not satisfied in God, whether things are good or whether things are bad. When things get going really good, how many of us are more concerned with God's glory than with our prosperity in that moment? Man, things are good. Maybe I thank God. Maybe I remember to thank Him, but I'm, I'm not fully satisfied in Him, focused on, okay, God, you've put me in this place for a reason. How can I glorify you in this place? Because that works on the mountain and it works in the valley. You've put me in this place for a reason. How can I glorify you through this situation? And then every day in between, finding the most satisfaction in God and in what He has done for us. In God and Him working through us in His Spirit. Is that the most satisfying thing in your life? Or is there something else, even a good thing, that maybe has edged satisfaction in the Lord out of first place? Folks, I had to wrestle with this question all week. Am I more concerned for God's glory than I am about my comfort, my convenience, my prosperity, my relief, my trials, my struggles? Am I more concerned about God's glory or about me? Am I most satisfied in God and what He's done or am I most satisfied in the things God's given me. Where's my focus? Because I can be honest with you, in Exodus 14, our launch point for this morning, those Israelites could not have cared less about God's glory. That's why he had to say to Moses, don't forget, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. He's trying to remind them, don't be focused on Pharaoh's army, be focused on the glory of the Lord. This morning, where's your focus? I have to answer it for me. You have to answer it for you. Are you willing to say, God, by my life or by my death, may you be glorified? Are we willing to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed? But for this very reason, Lord, you brought me to this earth and put me in this place. Glorify your name.